Good day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. And we don't ask for much in return. They'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. I've actually got uh, so there's there's one recent review. So uh, um, I think last week. Um, so this podcast joins me on any long car journey. It makes my time spent driving feel well spent. These podcasts include some amazing speakers who are specialists in their field they bring some interesting conversations along with new research but more information is also but sorry but information is also relevant to the general practitioner so thank you for that um and uh, and please keep those reviews coming in they really do help with the metrics that uh, that one day brian and i will uh, understand about um so uh, so today uh, joining brian and myself in the studio we're back in the studio we've left brian's office which is which is good um well not oh, maybe i shouldn't make any aspersions but anyway we're we're back in the studio. Joining myself is is uh, is Kata Vinick. I'm, I'm going to say that is that wrong. I'm sorry. You can correct me, Kata. <laughs> okay. So, hello. I'm Kata Veresniki. Veresniki. Thank you very much, Kata. And uh, and Kata is one of our lecturers here in anesthesia and analgesia. And I thought what we'd talk about would be um, equine uh, anesthesia. So, so maybe we'll divide it a bit into the field and um, maybe out in the hospital environment as as well. Which, which one would you like to go for first? Yeah, probably we should start in field anesthesia. So we can do only short and simple procedures there because we have quite limited um, tools to to provide general anaesthetic in the field usually for castrations or for very short surgeries up to one hour of time um, we, we, manages, we manage um, anaesthetics um, in the field. Everything beyond that time frame should be anaesthetized within clinical conditions because we need to use inhalant anesthesia because uh, the intravenous anesthesia we could use in field uh, would accumulate and then would make recovery worse. Um, and also um, horses become really hypoxemic um, on total intravenous anesthetics. So it would just for a very prolonged time would um, be hypoxic condition for the horse. Um, on inhalant anesthesia, we can provide um, extra oxygen for uh, these patients. Um, we don't have much drug accumulation and also we can monitor um, better the horses because um, anesthesia mortality is really high in horses. So we can just um, prevent some of those. So we're factors. talking a bit before the mics were open about that you you started off as a as an equine vet. So did you have certain procedures that you would you would be happy with uh, anaesthetizing a, a horse in the in the field? As in, is 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 that kind of the framework that you you would have thought? Okay, if I'm doing a castration or this stitch up, it should take less than that time. Yes, exactly. That's fine. Yeah. Is, is that yeah, how you yes. approach that? It's mainly castration, I think. What people are doing. Outside. Okay. So, do you, do you have a, a an approach that, that is different with your, say, pre anesthesia or so sedation for for horses, whether they're in the field or or in the hospital, or, or are they pretty similar? Um, I mean, you have to prevent good condition um, to anesthetize, so a safe environment. Um, we also have to um, consider the weather if you want to work outside. Um, we have to make sure that we don't have anything which can cause injury at induction or recovery. Um, people can escape if um, something goes wrong and a horse becomes violent or the recovery becomes violent so that no one gets injured. Um, and the area should be clean 
as well as much as possible okay and in the field would you often put catheters in horses or i think catheter probably should be placed anyway any horse which anesthetized because you never know what goes wrong and it's just also easier to top up it's it also has some safety issues so if you would struggle to find a vein to top up your anesthetic medication it would be a shame um can cause serious injuries for for anyone involved so i think it's just safer for the horse safer for us to have a catheter in okay and uh, and would you give any advice though, for do, doing any field anesthesia about uh, starving horses before or or do we do we not get or is there is there any frame of reference about what we should or shouldn't do about that horses cannot be sick really so there's not much um, starvation necessary roughly six eight hours what we recommend because anything above that um, could push the horse into catabolic state so then um, we have problems with gut stasis and motility after the anesthetic they're prone to have then um, uh, or, or might have colic postoperatively what why we why we starve the horses just at least to get the the stomach empty because um, of their anatomy then the stomach and um, the diaphragm will push against the lung so um, the functional residual capacity will be decreased so at least if we can empty the stomach that's um, already good to improve a bit oxygenation but probably six eight hours starving should be enough and and do you, is is that a um, a standard approach or is there is there some sort of disagreement with anaesthetists and equine um, practitioners or? I would say pretty pretty standard we we do starve horses for longer for specific procedures for example laparoscopic procedures when we we need to have better visibility so we want to have the guts as empty as possible because then the surgical time would increase if we wouldn't see well what's in and abdomen of the horse so then that's you just the risk is outweighs the uh, the benefits of shorter starvation and is that there's obviously an armory of different uh, pre-anesthetic agents or sed- sedatives that you can use, but are there are there common go-to ones that you would often use unless there's extenuating circumstances? Probably equine anesthesia is a bit more simple than small animal anesthetic because we have less um, usable agent really. Um, licensed agents are. Um, after agonists, um, which is mainly datomidine, romphidine and xylazine, which is um, licensed in horses, and um, azapromazine for pre-med. So it, that's pretty much defines what we can give for, for pre-med. Um, ACP won't give us reliable sedation. We still give them for all elective cases if there's no contraindication, because at cause some anxiolysis so we can um, give less alpha 2 agonist and the effect is very long so we still have some anxiolytic effect on recovery and it's been shown to decrease mortality that's the only drug which has been shown to decrease mortality in equine anesthesia so it's quite um, um, a nice drug in low low dose um, we, we use it on a regular basis but what really going to sedate our horse is alpha 2 agonist and and it's xylazine, detamidine and romifidine which is which are licensed products so we just choose either a personal preference or it's just um, the, the onset of action is quicker with xylazine because it's um, um, it's a less um, selective um, alpha-2 agonist. Um, the onset of action, detamidine and romphidine, 
they need just longer time to um, to have the effect, but also um, the effect's going to last longer in this order as well. So if you need to have sedation for a short procedure, then xylazine might be a good option. If you need um, sedation and analgesia for longer, then maybe um, romifidine could be an option. And romifidine is also supposed to cause less ataxia, so it might be beneficial uh, because of that reason as well. Um, depending on which procedure we're going to perform, if it's painful or not, then we combine alpha 2s with opioids. Uh, butorphanol is a licensed product, so we could we could use butorphanol for non-painful or or diagnostic procedures. And here at the RBC, we use quite a lot of um, morphine, which is not a licensed product, but potent analgesic or uh, methadone in horses, which is the same again. It's uh, there's no licensed product available um, in horses, but we just need we just do more. Um, painful procedures so we need to have potent analgesia on board and induction agents technically is the ketamine which is only um, which is licensed in horses and available uh, in the country other option would be tiopental but we have to import and and it's also not it's like quite an old drug with a lot of side effects um, but um, on the other hand, onset of action is really quick, so um, we always have it at hand at the clinic um, just to make sure in case we have a sudden arousal that we have something very quick acting and we give a low dose to, to make sure people are safe around the horse. And we combine ketamine with um, um, benzodiazepine, either midazolam or diazepam. I think it's just personal preference uh, to cause some muscle relaxant effect. Um, Okay, and so, so when you're deciding on a on a pre medication, do do certain things um, make you think you're going to need more or less? Does part of it depend on the age of the horse, and part of it, uh, um, if they have any systemic disease, is it similar with other species who start at a low end of dose and you you see what the effects? Or I know that, I imagine that in the field, people are a bit more got to get on with it. So so. Is is there like normally a, a starting dose that people just get on with it? Or? Yeah, usually they are the recommended dosages. Um, it's um, for xylazine, it's half to one milligram per kilo. Detomidine, uh, ten twenty microgram per kilo, and romifidine is um, like I would say sixty to to hundred microgram per kilo. Those and usually people are playing within that range, and then depending on if the horse is in poor condition, then. Usually you just want to give something which is short acting because it has negative influence on cardiac output as well. So for colic horses, um, we, we use xylazine for pre-medication. Um, but also the age of the horse, um, it's it's more um, older horses, which can be extremely sensitive to alpha-2 agonists. So geriatric horses above um or around 20 years of age or above can be very, very sensitive. So people should start with the lower end of the dose and then top up if needed. But but we've just seen some which were like almost falling over uh, with already low dose of, of alpha-2 agonist. And then fall, falls are the other end, say um, probably under one month of age, um, we try to avoid the use of alpha 2 agonists because um, cardiac output is heart rate dependent and um, alpha 2 agonists cause severe um, bradyarrhythmias. So therefore, just to keep up with the cardiac output, we, we try to, to avoid um, alpha 2 agonists and we just go with uh, benzodiazepines and, and ketamine for induction.
Do people use propofol in, in folks? Um, we can. It's off-label use again, okay. but, but yes, we can. Okay. I, I just, I just wonder, I thought, you know, cause I imagine that a lot of the um, problem with horses is just their, their size, right? So mm. anything is going to be ridiculously expensive if you use drugs like propofol or faxalone mm. or something we, we like could, that. There are papers using uh, faxalone as well in horses, right. but again, it's not a licensed product and you just don't want to have anything go wrong. And ketamine is, is working quite well. It's um, increasing the sympathetic tone, so usually provides quite cardiac output. And compared to compared to the small animal clinic, we have much less sick patients. So they're just doing bad. Usually they're just coming for, for either elective procedures or if they come for emergency procedures like injuries or or um, colic procedures, then um, the effect of increasing the sympathetic tone from the ketamine is actually beneficial. Um, but we don't see so sick animals like with chronic kidney disease or um, massive alteration of liver function. Usually they just they just don't come anymore. And so, Kata, when you when you give some uh, ketamine and a, say a benzodiazepine in the in the field to to induce anesthesia, how long does that normally uh, last for? Um, the induction dose of ketamine, two point two two and a half milligram per kilo, combined with um, twenty to forty micrograms per kilo benzodiazepines, any say midazolam or diazepam, um, usually it lasts. 12, 15 minutes anesthetics, and then we just need to top up um, with one quarter, a half of the original uh, ketamine dose to prolong the anesthetic. Okay, so, so the same thing as if we are doing like a total intravenous anesthesia in small animals, so you're just giving an, an amount and until they, they start moving around a bit. I suppose there's a bit more connotations there because of a, a dog or cat moves around a little bit, you can normally... Uh, it's um, less likely you get injured. Less, <laughs> less, less, indeed, less likely you get injured, uh, which probably it's helpful to have that, that catheter, yeah. uh, that catheter in, in place. Exactly. And then, I mean, just to prepare the area and uh, 12 minutes is not a very long time, so you, you have to be uh, very quick if you want to finish a procedure just within the window of one dose of anesthetic. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And so would, would your uh, idea about how you're going to anaesthetise a, a horse sort of change when you move that into into the hospital environment? So do, do you do anything different with regards to either either sedation or induction agent uh, if you're going to anaesthetise a horse in a, in a box, say, here? Um, not really. So it's pretty much the same protocol. At the maintenance, which is uh, it's much different because we use inhalant anesthetic, um, usually combined with other agents, depending on, again, the type of the procedure. For orthopedic procedures, we really like um, R2CRIs because it provides really good analgesia and have a massive effect on uh, the MAC of inhalant agents. So we have just much less um, inhalant agent those dependent side effects, so less cardiovascular depression, um, they're breathing better um, despite adequate depth of or yeah adequate depth of anesthesia. Okay, and do people use triple drips anymore? Yes, we can, but um, it we mainly use it on the field anesthetic so up to like one hours because of um, accumulation of the drugs um, we, we use here for for short procedures in recovery box or imaging procedures um, for CTs um, and then we can transport the animal 
be the triple dip attached to theatre so we don't need to have an anaesthetic machine available for the trip so it's still something in use and can be very useful okay and, and do you have any tips so is are there hard things to do when you're um putting a horse on an inhalation or anesthesia circuit so is it is it harder to intubate a, a horse for for example or any issues necessarily with that Probably, I would say, a normal sized horse is much more easy to intubate than any small animals because it's pretty easy to blindly intubate them. You just have to have the good technique. So, you just extend the neck, uh, pull the tongue out, and and slide the tube in quite gently and rotate uh, where you are. Um, you're about um, the lowering. So, it's it most of the time is quite straightforward. It's just very important that you should never force the tube in um, if it doesn't go easily then you might need to go one side down or it might be that it has dorsal displacement so you, you should try to provoke um, um, uh, repositioning of um, uh, the anatomical structures like bending the neck and extending again that most of the time helps or if um, the horse has like left laryngeal hemiplegia which might cause problems uh, with intubation um, then um, um, having an endoscope around could help to to make sure that you intubate the horses correctly but most of the time like 95 percent of the horse is really easy to intubate okay well that's that's, that's good um and uh, and what sort of monitoring do you do you normally like to instigate either either on the f- in the field or uh, or actually in a, in a hospital environment so we, we also do like almost failed procedures, just very short procedures in recovery box, where our standard is, it's not belonging to monitoring, but just intubate a catheter, intubation and um, supplementation of oxygen, just flow by oxygen through the nose. And um, then we just do um, physiological monitoring. So just um, the pulse quality, um, heart rate, respiratory rate, um, mucosal membrane, um, CRT, um, movement density of the neck and um, the eye signs if there's any nystagmus or tear production um, that's going to help us to assess the depth of anesthesia and um, the condition of the horse. So, so how, do, how do you assess the anesthesia depth in, in horses? Um, the eyes are, are really good so you you one you don't want to have nystagmus because it's most of the time means that your anesthetic depth is um, too light. So that's um, slow and then starting fast in nystagmus, it means that your horse is about to probably to move. Or um, the horse is really, really deep, so it's close to the death and you can see nystagmus again. However, hopefully you can differentiate between the two status because then it did, if it would be too deep, probably would pulse quality would be worse, um, wouldn't breed anymore, so hopefully you can differentiate. So most of the time it means that your horse is getting lighter. Papibro reflex um, became more brisk. However, if it's only total intravenous anesthesia, so if um, we are in the field, it's really difficult because ketamine can cause nystagmus, so it cannot be used anymore as a a sign of of too light anesthetic. So you have to then look at the other signs, um, muscle relaxation, neck muscles are usually quite good. Um, respiratory rate and quality so if it's too superficial then it's probably too light um, if it's not breathing then it's probably too deep and do, do you do so for for, for monitoring um, if, it, if it's going to have a longer procedure is 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 that when you do everything as in the pulse oximetry and arterial lines yeah. and 
Yes, yes, indeed. So um, we use, in theatre, we always use full monitoring so or standard monitoring for theatre patients or inhalant anaesthetics or pulse oximeter, ECG, um, invasive blood pressure measurement and uh, coptograph. So that's, that's the minimum we have. We, we also have non-invasive blood pressure measurements. It's not as reliable, but but we still have something or some values to assess um, blood pressure until we place an arterial line and have invasive blood pressure measurement, which is extremely important in horses because inhalant anesthetics um, that cause vasodilation and a decrease in cardiac output, decrease in perfusion of the muscles, and um, horses are prone to have myopathy because they just have a very huge amount of muscles, and if they're not perfused, they won't be able to get up at the end of surgery. So so invasive blood pressure measurement is really, really um, a cornerstone of equine anesthesia monitoring. Which is good because they have quite large arteries that are a bit easier to catheterize than dogs and cats, no? Um, I would say yes. Um, some some of my residents coming from small animal fields, uh, they might find it other way around, but in general they have bigger arteries. But the, the wall is very musculatured and then it just likes to go away from, from your needle. So it's a bit of a practice or experience or taste do you, do you ever use a side stream capnography with uh, with horses say for in a for a short procedure do you ever do you ever use that um some sometimes we, we i mean we can use we intubate all our horses so if we have any concern um then yes we, we, we can use yeah, just just wondering. So, so monitoring the blood pressure is is good. So, what would you do? So, if the if the if you're um, anaesthetizer a, a horse in a in a, I, I suppose, a, for lack of a better word, if I say a standard way, and it's on an inhalational agent and the blood pressure is is getting lower, what 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 is your intervention? First of all, we check anaesthetic depth. So that's the most important step, uh, because very often it's just um, too deep anesthetized um, after we corrected that usually we just um, give some more fluids either just increase the rate we cannot really give bolus of fluids like in small animals because of uh, technical difficulties so there's no pump which could deliver or I'm not aware of which could deliver really that high volume uh, per hour or pumps in the small animals deliver up to like two liter I think the maximum um, which they can do but most of them just around a liter per hour which is like two mils per kilo per hour for a horse so it's like nothing you cannot really call it as a fluid bolus um, then we tend to give some ionotrope agents on top dobutamine um, uh, to increase cardiac contractility and most of the time that's enough so we, we can it's probably the most important is anesthetic depth if because again as i said most of the horses we have to deal with are elective procedures if if there are emergency procedures um and they are sick then we need more um fluid and and um ionotrope support or sometimes even vasopressors uh, um can be used either as an ephedrine bolus or um, noradrenaline coi um, depending on the case I suppose, I suppose, again, thinking about it, like I, I'd have no qualms to turn off anaesthetic in a small animal uh, procedure, but then I'm not worried about if the animal wakes up too much. 
but but that's very different like with a uh, with a 500 kilo animal if it's suddenly starting to 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 wake up it's um a, a different ball game yes yeah so it, it can be dangerous so it's yeah. it really needs close attention so i think the difficulty um is not really the case itself challenging uh, most of the time as i said is we're dealing with the elective cases are mainly healthy horses so it's not we're dealing with extremely sick animals uh, but it's more that um, um that we try to prevent these erosal episodes because it can be dangerous for the personal so you just have to be always on your toes and and follow up anesthetic depth very closely just to make sure that no one gets injured and do you, do you think about recovery in the same way, whether it's in the in the hospital in a knockdown box or or in the field? Um, I mean, it's much easier um, to have a recovery box because then it's well padded, so that could prevent most of the injuries. Um, in field uh, horses, if they have a bad recovery, um, either you just leave them. Or, or left a um, certain area for them if it's like enclosed area um, or you try to assist them but then it's dangerous so you can you can still assist um, having a, a rope a lead rope on a halter and and holding the tail but it's just it's definitely much more um, dangerous for the personals who are helping out than having either a free or a rope assisted recovery in a proper recovery box what we have here in the clinic. Mm. I just wonder, do, do people cover eyes of, of horses in the in the field? Um, it's it's probably a good um, good habit to to cover it just um, to prevent simulation from um, from the light, and also um, some people covering the ears or using earplugs. It's just. Um, a matter of when you you remove it because some horses they don't tolerate when they're standing so it's just difficult then to remove but then it would decrease the stimulation so um you, they would have a more relaxed time and probably less likely that they're gonna move um during the anesthetic and in, in field anesthetic people tend to to sit on their neck and try to keep the horse down until they have um strong enough efforts to to be able to get up so well I've been told that you have to wait for three strong effort and then you can let the horse up. Um, it's, um, it definitely helps recovery quality, but it's also um, can lead to personal injury because it, they might come around very quick and then throw you away and then you can get into trouble. So mm. here, when, when we have appropriate recovery box, which is padded, um, then um, after extubation, we leave the horse alone, um, either on the ropes and we assist them from far on the ropes or uh, leave them to recover in the padded recovery box on their own. So reducing the possibility of personal injury. So is ace promycine as far as a, a, a positive thing in the recovery of horses to do with that ongoing longer sedation? Yes. So when they recover, they yeah. don't they don't thrash around as as yeah. much as that. Yes. Is that exactly. exactly. So is there any horse that you would not give ace promycine to? Um, horses um, which have um, unstable cardiovascular status because we have um, massive vasodilation from the ACP and you cannot really reverse um, this vasodilation and the effect is very long, four to six hours. So you don't want to 
get yourself into more trouble. And also it's a bit debated to give it to stallions, to breeding stallions, um, because you can have priapism and penile injury. And um, as far as I'm aware, it's still under leaflet um, of the drug that is contraindicated. Um, According to, to recent papers, actually probably the likeliness of having such an injury is just much smaller than all the benefits what the horse can get from having ACP on board. But definitely I would inform the owner um, and um, and ask permission to use it in a, in a stallion if I would like to, to use it, uh, just to make sure that the owner understands um, the risks. Because there is a risk, uh, however, probably just improving recovery quality and um, decreasing the chance of injury and have better um, 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 like more more relaxed recovery phase probably the horse profit actually more than the risk of the drug uh, and if you're concerned so say if you haven't given ace promazine to a to a horse and you're concerned that it might wake up um, quite strongly or quite too much and might cause itself a bit of harm when it does that is that where you'd give either another alpha 2 or benzodiazepine as a as a smaller dose or, or is it fine line because obviously you want them to stand up yes for so for uh, for short procedures and field procedures usually you might have still um the after you are going to stand on board from the pre-med um or or if the procedures get longer then we don't only top up the ketamine but also we include um partial dose of alpha 2 agonist and recovery quality is um, relatively good after a short, short procedure. Um, inhalant anesthetic um, recovery is worse because you have an excitatory phase emerging from inhalant anesthetic and that we try to suppress with administration of alpha 2 agonist. So most of our horses got an additional dose of alpha 2 agonist um, at the end of the recovery phase when they start to have nystagmus just to suppress this excitatory phase and improve um, recovery quality cool that's that's good do you think there's is there anything we've uh, we've 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 missed from our uh, um from talking about uh, equine anesthesia either in the field or in a hospital environment probably not probably um and uh, and like are there any horse breeds that are, are slightly slightly different or you 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 sort of um Ponies might be more difficult to intubate, so it's it's a good um, protocol to have. We have um, endoscope ready for for um, like mini Shetties or Shetland ponies um, to make sure that if we have a difficulty, and it's also Murphy's law. So if you have it ready, then you don't need it. So um, that's that's how how life is. Um, also for donkeys, so we have the endoscope ready every every time just to make sure um, we we have. Um, um, have it at hand if we need to. Um, also, young patient, unbroken horses can can cause trouble because of they just need extra um, extra dose of sedation and they are really high on adrenaline. So it's just just difficult to um, to get them settled and they might react badly on recovery phase. They might have much more um, violent recoveries. Um, some horse breed prone to problems like um, quarter horses, um, they can have um, hyperkalemic periodic paralysis, um, which is like um, uh, inherited disease, uh, but you have the option to 
um, screen the horses if they are um, sensitive to this or, or they're prone to, uh, to have this disease. Um, thoroughbreds, um, it's difficult to, to understand thoroughbreds if they have a, like a race truck injury again because um, they are just f full in, um, in um, just after exercise, um, muscles are tied up, um, high on adrenaline, so it can, can, can be challenging um, and um, it can have uh, post-operative complications like uh, myopathy or even like a sudden um, cardiac arrest. So you normally wait until they have calmed down? I mean, we try to stabilise them, but it's also difficult because if it's an injury, which you, you need to, to deal with as soon as possible, um, and they have to be transported to the hospital, which it's, again, a huge amount of stress. So um, we, we try to, to have a, as quiet environment as possible for induction. Maybe that's what we forgot to mention, that it's very important to have a very quiet um, environment to induce and to recover. So um, and not only well-padded in recovery box, but well-trained people around and, and keep everything quiet and, and calm um, so the, we don't upset the horses because then they just need less of two agonists and then less side effects uh, from the dose-dependent side effects. The, the other thing I suppose I didn't ask about was about thermoregulation, like in general whether you need to tie horses. Are we are we concerned about about thermoregulation? Um, they all became hypothermic. The longer the procedure, the more hypothermic uh, they can be. Um, we don't have really good opportunity to keep them warm or warm them up, besides having theatre temperature. I wouldn't say hot, but at least not cold, um, because we just don't have tools like um, hot dog or or forced air, um, uh, warm air um, devices to to warm them up. It's probably difficult with the space required mm. to anaesthetize a horse and surgery room size that yeah. to actually keep that at a normal temperature is yes. probably quite difficult in yeah. itself, isn't it? To uh, to keep that there, but all all that all good thoughts. Um, Thank you so much for uh, for for coming to uh, to have a chat. I definitely were asking um, uh, questions more for made me made me think of how uh, how lucky we have it with uh, animals that can only scratch and bite us rather than uh, trample us, uh, which, which is which is a bit of bit of a bit of a concern. Um, so so thank you uh, thank you once again, and we'll wrap it up there. Um, many thanks for for you for listening, and so don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device and that way you won't even have to worry about missing out podcast. If you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends or any other friends, that would be fine. Um, we'll place any show notes on the RVC pages, so just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, then please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.